excuse me, if you would, go ahead and grab uh, your Bibles and find your way to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 32 this morning. So if you weren't here last week or if you were, a little bit of catch up. We are started into a series just for this month, and it's called Waiting for Jesus. And we are working our way through some of the passages in the Gospels which record for us the birth of Jesus, which is obviously the focus of Christmas. But we've been talking about this reality that I think all of us kind of struggle with, and that is if you're honest with yourself, if you follow Jesus any amount of time in your life, you realize that following Jesus requires waiting. How many know that's true? Waiting longer than you want to wait. Now, the challenge that we face with waiting is that we have an idea of what we think waiting is, and that is waiting is a waste. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my energy. I have more important things to do than wait. And so because of that, we apply that to our spiritual life and that we think that waiting for God and his presence to show up in our life is just a waste of time. And so we try to avoid any kind of waiting in life. In fact, our lives are completely geared around how to eliminate this thing called waiting in our life because we hate to wait. Anybody been to Universal Studios lately? You know, Universal Studios, you guys need to get out more. Uh, Universal Studios has an app that when you are in the park, you can use, and it literally tells you the wait time of every ride or attraction. So when you're walking through the park, you don't need to like walk to the tram ride or go down the hill to the Transformers to see how long the wait is. You just open up that app, and it tells you five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, because God forbid you don't want to wait more than 25 minutes for anything in the park. So, so you look at your day, and you plan according to what? Wait times. So your whole day is set up on how do you eliminate the amount of time that you have to wait for anything. And that's how we live our lives is we use things like Waze or Google Maps when you get in the car to what? Find the fastest way from point A to point B without that much traffic. How many know what I'm talking about? Why? Because waiting is a waste, and that's our idea. But that's our idea. That's not God's idea. God is at work in the middle of waiting in our life. And so we talked a little bit about Mary last week and waiting for God's purpose to show up in our life and what that looks like. And then this morning, we're going to look at, at another person who's a part of this narrative. His name is Simeon. And Simeon has an encounter with Jesus when he's just eight days old, when Mary and Joseph are, are now uh, doing what every good Jewish couple would do, and they're bringing their son, their firstborn, to the temple to be uh, ultimately circumcised but dedicated for God's purpose. And so, so this is kind of where we pick up the story because that's where Simeon has this encounter with Jesus that he's been waiting for his entire life. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and let's look at verse 22 of Luke 2, and I'll read down to verse 32. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, people Israel. So in, the, in this story, we're picking up kind of midway, obviously, and we're picking up what's happening for, for Simeon 
is he's experiencing the fulfillment of God showing up in a way that God had promised that, that came way before Simeon ever even walked the planet. God had made a promise. In fact, we, there's a term that's used. It's called the consolation of Israel, which basically means the salvation of Israel that, that they had waited for, that God had promised through the centuries that God was going to send a Messiah that would redeem his people. And not only redeem his people, it would save all people. And so Simeon had believed that because he heard it as a child growing up that God someday would actually bring about this salvation of all the people. And so he had waited with anticipation for this Messiah to come. And now in his lifetime, this is happening. But we're picking up a very small sliver of Simeon's life, and we don't get any other information other than what's in this passage. But from what's in this passage, what you and I can learn from Simeon's example in the waiting process is not the fact that he did wait, but it's how he waited and what that looked like in his life. Because you and I will wait for Jesus to do things in our life. The question is, how do you wait for him? What does your life look like in the midst of waiting? So five things I want to highlight from this passage and from obviously what we've seen uh, in Simeon's life. But so first thing is this. Look at verse 25. Waiting for God to show up by his presence, waiting for God to work in your life, means that you and I have to learn to wait obediently. So it says of this, of, of Simeon, that he was righteous and he, is de- he was devout, which means Simeon got it right. Simeon was righteous, and that means the way he waited for God to show up, he did it in an obedient way. Now you're thinking, how can you be disobedient when you're waiting, when waiting means you're doing nothing and you're wasting time? Ever done anything wrong when you're wasting time? Yeah. Were all of us kids once? Yeah. And ever got into trouble when you had nothing else to do? Yeah, we have a tendency to do that. Waiting actually is a very dangerous point for us because when it comes to the way that we look at God, so many times when we're waiting for God to show up and do what God's supposed to do to prove that he's God for us, when he doesn't show up in the time frame that we've laid out for him, we start to get stir crazy. We start to do things like take matters into our own hands because we think God doesn't know what he's doing. Never will you find in Simeon's life, and you can tell because he's called what righteous and devout, which means he got it right, that ever did he ever somehow in the waiting become disobedient in the way he approached God, which means he never took matters into his own hands. Why is that important? Because we do that all the time. Israel did it all the time. In fact, remember when Israel comes out of God, sets them free from Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness, and then Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law of God that he's speaking to them. And, and it literally, it wasn't that long, maybe a day or two, we, don't, we know, and suddenly the people say this of Moses. We don't even know what's happened with this guy. Where did he go? He's gone. So now they're waiting for Moses to come back with the very words of God. And do you remember the story of what happens? They decide to make a golden calf and start worshiping that instead of God. Great idea. Why? Because they didn't, they didn't know what to do because we're waiting and it's just waiting. We're waiting too long. And because of that, we got to do something. And usually when you and I force ourselves to do something in the waiting, we do the wrong thing. We make a bad choice. Why? Because we think somehow we're going to help God or we're going to, out of frustration, we're going to do something that we're going to regret because we're not being obedient just to wait on what God wants to do in our life. Maybe you're like me, and I know I can get very impatient. Have you ever been at a stoplight, and you're waiting there, and it's a red light, and by your calculations, it's taking too long? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and it's not just that it's taking too long because the light's cycling, but in your mind, you start to think, there's something mechanically wrong with this light. It can't possibly take this long. So then you start scanning the intersection, and you're seeing if other people are moving, and if they're all sitting still, in your mind, you're thinking, something's gone wrong with this light. Anybody ever done this before? And so then there's that part of your brain that says, 
well, maybe we should just move out in the intersection because everybody knows that it's not working and we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. And so you're ready to go. Like, you're going to be the first person that's going to kind of head out and break the, the traffic jam. And then just before you hit the gas, the light turns green, and it really all was about you being impatient. Anybody relate to that? We do that. We make bad decisions. In the confession time, two days ago, I made a really bad choice at a light because I was impatient. So I was sitting behind a big truck, and I was, he was turning left. I was making a U-turn. Lots of oncoming traffic. So I knew that the light was going to have to cycle all the way through till it turned yellow and then red, and then we could go. And if, just like any good Californian, you make sure that you get the nose of your car into the intersection, right? So when the light turns, you're still in. Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? So I'm edging up behind this big truck, and I'm waiting for the light to turn. And, and so because I know he's going to turn left, and I can, I can whip a U-turn really fast. So all the cars are coming, the light turns yellow, and then it turns red, and I know. Now he's going because all the traffic has to stop. So he starts going to turn left, and I start making a U-turn only to discover in my impatience he was making a U-turn as well. You ever turned inside somebody to make a U-turn because you're turning faster than them? That was extremely awkward. As he's turning, and all of a sudden he starts to turn into me, and I'm turning as fast as I can to get out of the way of him. And finally I made it around, and he got right up behind me, and I'm like, oh, that was a really a bad move. And I'm sure there were a few words coming off of, out of his mouth that I couldn't hear at the time. And it was one of those moments where it's like I wanted to, like, acknowledge that I was the idiot. And I, didn't, I was going to wave my hand, but I thought, no, he'll probably interpret that as the wrong gesture. I should probably just leave my hands, and hopefully he doesn't follow me. But I was just looking back thinking all I had to do was not be a typical Californian and just wait to see what the truck was going to do and then actually have to wait a whole nether 45 seconds for the light to cycle again so I could make a U-turn. When you and I get impatient, we take, our, take things into our own hands, and we make mistakes. Simeon was righteous and devout, which means that he knew how to wait obediently, to wait on God to do what he's going to do. Second thing is how we wait. And what we need to learn to do is we need to learn to wait expectantly. So the concept of waiting, in verse 25, it says, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The word waiting, for you and I, again, you and I equate waiting and wasting. It's not. Waiting, and that actual word means waiting with expectation, waiting for somebody, waiting for something to happen, waiting as you're leaning in. So it's waiting with this anticipation that somebody is about to arrive, something's about to happen. Now remember, Simeon did this his entire life. See, you and I are getting a sliver of his life. We're like, oh yeah, I, I can wait for five minutes. No, how about 70 or 80 years? That you know that there's a promise that God has put out there that's supposed to happen, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. Somewhere down the line, you're going to go like, I'm really not expecting anything now. I mean, really. I've waited for 50 years. If God was going to do it, he would have done it already, so it's not going to happen. Never did Simeon experience that. Why? Because this word waiting actually says he was waiting in his old age with this great expectation that God was actually going to show up and do something. You know how hard it is sometimes to wait with expectation when you've been waiting for a long time? We know how to wait with cynicism. We know how to wait with negativity, but we don't know how to wait with what expectation that God is actually going to show up. He's actually going to do something. He's actually going to do what he said he's going to do. But how many times do you and I just give up? Somewhere along the, the process, you and I go off the rails with God because he hasn't delivered. He hasn't done what he's supposed to do, and we get tired of waiting for him, and so we just check out, and then we miss what God has been wanting to do in our lives. There's something in the waiting that God is doing that we're not aware of that has to be a part of the process. So anybody baseball fans in here? Anybody Chicago Cub fans? I know there's very few of them on the West Coast, but so if you remember, if 
Last year, 2016, the Cubs won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. Longest drought in, in major sports. So pretty significant for that to happen. And it's interesting, you know, either Cubs fans were like long-suffering and hung out, and, or, or somewhere in those 108 years, Cubs fans kind of jumped ship and became Dodger fans or White Sox fans or Yankee fans because they got tired of what? Waiting. And every year they got disappointed because every year they weren't going to win. They kind of pretend they were going to win, but then they would find a way to always lose. I'm going to play a short video for you of a, a woman who is 108 years old. She was literally a few months old when the last time the Cubs won the World Series, and for 108 years, she's been a Cub fan. So this is her experience when they won a year ago. Let's take a look at this together. Kendall Nilsson is getting flowers and congratulations cards, and she's holding the headline she's been waiting a lifetime to read. Since I went to high school, and that was a long, almost 100 years ago, I've been a Cub fan. Born in Chicago two months before the Cubs won their last World Series in 1908, Hazel grew up less than two miles from Wrigley Field. She owned a Model T, went to college during the Depression, and had two sons during World War II. And through it all, she says, she remained faithful to her Cubs. They were my team. And they lost, and lost, and lost. So, as the Cubs faced the Cleveland Indians in a climatic Game 7, Hazel was glued to the TV in the community room at a retirement home in Sunapee, New Hampshire. After the game went into a rain delay and then extra innings, most everybody else here at Sunapee Cove went to bed. But not Hazel. She came back to her apartment and watched to the very end. And when Cubs third baseman Chris Bryant made a throw to first for the final outs, Hazel, all by herself, exploded in joy. I could scab out of a chair, yelled, hey, Cubs. And with the Cubs win now checked off her bucket list, does Hazel have any future wishes? No, I've done everything. I've had a good life. Do you want to see the Cubs win again next year? Oh, sure. <laughs> Even at 108, the taste of victory... Go, Cubs, go! ...is easy to get used to. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So if, you're, if, if you didn't watch that game last year, by the way, so, so she's on the East Coast. The game starts later. There was a rain delay, so the game was like five hours long. So that means in, on the East Coast, that game ended around 1.30 in the morning. And she was the only one that was still up in that retirement facility shoot, rooting for her Cubs because she believed they were actually going to win. I love that, that, that long suffering of saying, okay, I am committed to this team even though they break my heart every year, even though they disappoint me every year, eventually they're going to win. And there's a lot of Cub fans that were Cub fans and then they stopped being Cub fans and then suddenly when the Cubs were in the World Series, they're Cub fans again. It doesn't work that way. It's that longevity. It's that faithfulness. It's that expectation that something's going to happen. And that's the way that you and I have to approach the way God works in our lives. Third thing, look at verses 25 uh, to 27. And that is this. Waiting for God to work, waiting for his presence means that you and I have to learn to wait intentionally. There's actually intention in the waiting. So listen to what it says of Simeon. It says, And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple. Do you see what's laced throughout there? It's God's presence by his spirit working on and in Simeon to put him in a place that when God was going to show up and do something, that Simeon would be present. What does that mean? That mean God, it means God is working on you long before he ever works in you. 
He's already at work, and you and I have this idea of God. If I can't see it, and I can't feel it, and I can't experience it, then God must not be working. But if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about God is at work all the time. There's never a moment where he's at rest. He's always working through our, our lives and our circumstances. And that means that every moment, even in the waiting, God has intention for our lives. We may not see it or feel it or understand it, but God is still at work in the middle of our lives. And that's why in Proverbs it says, Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, We can make our plans, but the Lord does what? He determines our steps. That means God is involved in every single detail of every single day of your life, working out your steps for and ultimately that you would see him and know him and understand him in your life. That's the way that God works. But you and I think, he can't be working because I don't know it. I can't see it. And can you imagine for Simeon? He's born into this promise that he heard from his parents, and he's kind of like, yeah, that's just legend. That's just fairy tale. That's folklore. That's not reality. But he believed it to the point that every day of his life he had this expectation that God was by intention going to work out something that would bring about what God had promised for centuries. And God did it in his life. You and I have to understand, God, there are no random moments in our life. You know how we hear of, that was a random act. That was a random accident. There isn't any random with God. God is always working out his purpose in our lives. I want to kind of put it on, on, a, on a different scale. So anybody ever seen the Columbia River? Wow, you guys really need to get out. Universal Studios, Columbia River. I know it's like in other states, but, but the Columbia River is, is gorgeous. It's a massive river that obviously flows. And here's a picture of it you can see. But it, it is massive. But you know what's true about the Columbia River, which is true about every river, but you see a huge river like this that literally has, I mean, millions and millions of gallons of water flowing through it all the time. Every single snowflake and every single raindrop that ends up in the Columbia River ends up by intention because it's all determined by where it falls. See, a raindrop and a snowflake can't hit the ground and then think, huh, I want to go a different direction. It has to flow with the way that the terrain takes it, the way the elevation is. And in our country, for certain parts of the country, where rain falls and snow falls eventually through different rivers or tributaries, it will find its way into the Columbia River according to where it falls. Which means when it falls a certain way, and it may be off by a foot on a certain mountain, and it goes one direction, it's going to end up in the Columbia. If it goes the other direction, it'll end up in another river going the other direction, and eventually it'll find its way to a lake or obviously to the ocean. Now when you think about that, that means that every single drop of water that finds its way into what you're seeing right now, this is the mouth of the Columbia River, which means it's the end of the Columbia River that goes out by Astoria and out into the Pacific Ocean. That is massive. Every single drop of water that flows to the Columbia River did not determine how it got there. It was subject to what? Streams and tributaries and lakes and, and everything that would eventually flow, what? By gravity and terrain into one river. You look at your life and you think that things are random, and they're not. Because God is orchestrating, even though you're making plans for your life, God is directing the steps that you have for his intention, for his purpose. In this passage, it's obvious, Simeon had an understanding, and maybe he didn't even know it fully, but God was, by God's Spirit, working on Simeon to get him in a place where he was in the temple when Jesus shows up, the fulfillment of the promise that he had longed for his entire life. And you and I have to understand, God is at work in the middle of our waiting. It isn't a waste. It isn't some time for us to figure out a different plan. God is at work in our waiting. Why? Because his spirit is actively present and working in our lives all of the time. 
But you're like, well, I can't see him. That doesn't mean that he's not real. It doesn't mean he's not working because so many times you and I can't see God's hand until we look back on it and realize, oh, I see you there and I see you there and I see how you orchestrated that. I see how you changed that. And sometimes it just takes the patience to say, I trust God is working even though I can't see him. Simeon had that, and that's what God calls us to experience. And then there's a fourth reality of waiting for God to work in our lives, and that means we have to wait faithfully. So verses 29 and 30 says, <clears throat> Lord, now, this, listen to Simeon's words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So Simeon obviously is saying to God, I can die now. I have seen what you promised. And he's been faithful all those years to long for this, to pray for this. And then God shows up, and now he says, I have seen it. And this is what you've talked about, and I'm good. You, you can take me now because I have seen your work in my life. And how, how can Simeon say that? Because Simeon was never a bandwagon fan. He never jumped on the bandwagon and jumped off with God. He constantly was faithful to God throughout his life. That's why the Bible says he was righteous and devout. He was faithful all the way through. He was consistent. There has to be those moments when Simeon was somewhere halfway through his life that he had, for one moment, maybe question, God, really? I mean, my parents told me about it, and their parents told them about it, and their parents told them, and really? But he never wavered. He was always faithful. He was always faithful because he knew he had a connection to God. Now, why is that important? Because so many times you and I are unfaithful to God because we don't think that God's going to show up and work in our life. We think he's forgotten us. We think he's gotten busy. He's fallen asleep. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so we disengage from God when God never disengages from us. Think about that. You and I struggle with the waiting because this is the way we interpret God. God, you are real if you work in my life, and I can verify that. But if I can't see you at work in my life, then you're no longer God. You and I maybe don't articulate that, but that's how we treat God. When we contend for something, when we pray for something, and we pray for it over and over and over again, it doesn't happen, we become disillusioned with God, thinking, God, you're not at work. No, what's true is that God hasn't jumped through the hoop that you've created for him. You've created a test for him that says, if you're God, you'll do this. That's not God. That's called a genie. I don't want a genie. You get three wishes, and that's it, okay? With God, you get a, a sovereign God who knows What's best for us more than we know for ourselves? We don't set the agenda with God. God sets the agenda for us. But think about being faithful in your life. Paul reminds us of this in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Did you notice Paul doesn't mention any time frame in there? See, because you and I want to wake up on Monday where God starts his good work and then wake up on Tuesday and he's done, right? Anybody up for that? That's what we'd love for him to do, but God doesn't do that. There's no time frame in there. And for us, it may be somewhere in this lifetime, but it also may be the fulfillment of that in the next life. If you're a follower of Jesus and you follow him, and then eventually when you leave this world and you die, you are in his presence. And that is the fulfillment of everything, and the faithfulness is tested. But there's strong imagery in the Bible that you don't have to remember. This whole thing with God is relational. It's not a contract it's relational, which means that we relate in a, in a relational basis to God. That's why the Bible talks about, when it talks about the church, it refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And so when you look at a relational terms, there's, you and I understand what faithfulness looks like in relationships. Faithfulness to a friend, faithfulness to a spouse, that you've made a commitment regardless of what comes your way, that what, until death do us part, I am what faithful to you. 
but sometimes our faithfulness wavers. I think I mentioned this before. I had a friend that he proposed, and it took him 17 years after the proposal to actually marry his wife. 17. So the reason behind that is that his mom was ill when he proposed, and the commitment was he would care for his mom, and when she passed away, then they would get married. She hung on for 17 years. Uh, there had to be a moment or two like, Mom, go see Jesus. Come on, please. But you know, when I think about his wife, she deserves a medal. 17 years. I know my friend, he's a good guy. I don't think he's worth 17 years. I'll just be honest. He's probably thinking, he's not worth 17 years. She loved him so much that she waited 17 years without wavering because she knew eventually they would get married. That's crazy. Can you wait a lifetime? Can you wait for God to show up in your life? That's the challenge that we have. Faithfulness is what Simeon had in his life, and that's why he experienced what he experienced. That's why God showed up and Jesus came, and Simeon got to be witness to that. Why? Because he was faithful to the very end, to the point where he was ready to say, okay, God, I've seen what I need to see now. And the final thing is this in verses 31 and 32, and I just take a little time to talk about this. That is that you and I need to understand that waiting means that we have to wait collectively. So verses 31 and 32 says this, and Simeon says these words. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God had given centuries before. He says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles for the glory and for the glory to your people Israel. So Simeon ends with words that are not his words, words that came before him, but this is what he's saying. The waiting wasn't just about Israel. The waiting was for everyone. Because what Simeon is saying is something that the Jews had trouble seeing, but Simeon could see it, and that is that Jesus came not just for his people being the Jews, but Jesus came for all people being the world. And so when Simeon is saying that, this is important, and I think it's important in the way that we can apply it to our lives. You are not the only one waiting for God to show up. Why is that important? How many times in your life have you licked your wounds and said, woe's me, I'm the only person that knows that God doesn't work in their lives, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, while everybody else around me seems to get what God wants to do in their life, but me, I'm just waiting. Anybody want to relate to that? I have. It's not fair. Why do they get the promotion? Why do they get the healing? Why do they get the great marriage? Why do they get all the things that I've prayed for and I don't get God? Why is that? As though you're the only one on the planet that you're waiting for God to show up in your life. And then if you start to really ask people and you start to get to know people, you realize at some point or at one point or another in all of our lives, we've been in a season of waiting for God. Not knowing if God's going to show up. Having to be faithful in the middle of a long season of waiting. But you and I have to understand something. That means that it's about everyone. That means that the world is waiting for God. And they may not know that they're waiting for God, but all of us are waiting for God. That means your friend and your neighbor and your family member that doesn't know Jesus, they're waiting for God as much as you are. They just don't know that they're waiting. And what are they doing while they're waiting? They're not waiting obediently. They've gone off the deep end. Why? Because they think that there isn't a God who's going to show up in their life, so they have to take matters into their own hands. And you're the one person who's near them that can show them there is a way to wait for God to show up in my life that I'm going to be faithful to and demonstrate to them that God is faithful. So that's hard. We don't want to wait. But you and I have to understand something about the way God works. 
Waiting isn't wasting, but also, you know what waiting is not? Waiting is not doing nothing. See, because you and I think waiting means I just have to kill time. I have to just kill a period of time until God actually shows my life. That's never what you see throughout the Bible. You see people waiting, but they wait actively. They wait expectantly. They wait with this thing called hope. And hope says tomorrow can be better than today. That's what hope says. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's your mantra. That's the core of who we are. That somehow God is at work and something will get better eventually. Even though the world is getting worse, my life can change and I can be transformed and things can be better of what God is doing in my life. That means that when you and I are waiting, we're not really waiting. We're actually living. And some of us, I don't, I'm not pointing fingers, I don't have one person or two people in mind, but I've watched collectively in the church overall, what we have a tendency to do is we experience what this passage says, the consolation of Israel, the salvation of our souls, that Jesus came, and we understand who he is, and we confess our sin, and we turn and we follow him, but then this is what we describe our Christian experience as. I'm just waiting till Jesus returns again so I can go home and be in heaven with him. So from the moment you're saved to the moment you die, all you're doing is just doing time and waiting for God. And the reason you're waiting is because the last thing you want to do is mess it up and get your life soiled or dirty by the world. So you isolate from the world and we pull back from the world, holding on for our moral purity that somehow when Jesus comes back, we'll be thought worthy enough to go see him and we've missed the entire point. We were never meant to wait in isolation. We were meant to what? Wait collectively for Jesus to come and do what he's going to do in our lives. Why is that important? Because there's something that God has embedded in humanity, even those who don't know Jesus, that have an expectation and a desire, even though it may die in some points in their life, that somehow there is life after this season of waiting. And that's how what makes people live example for this. And I'm going to equate our lives with something a little bit strange, okay? I want you to think of a refugee camp. At any given time in the world, there are literally millions of people living in refugee camps. This is what's crazy. A refugee camp is a place that someone had to leave their home, the place that they grew up in, the place where they had a house and they had a job and they had a family because of unrest and war and whatever it might be, and they had to move to a place where they had nothing and so a government or an NGO or it could be the United Nations sets up a refugee camp in a certain part of the world where people can come and they can live temporarily until they can get their lives back with the hope that maybe they can go back to their, their home or maybe they can transition to a new permanent home. So they're in this in-between stage. They're in this season of waiting. What happens in refugee camps when people get there and they're waiting? Now, if you have never read or listened or gone to a refugee camp, you could have kind of a, a stereotypical idea of what a refugee camp is like. It's a bunch of people sitting around waiting for something to happen. So you do nothing. You just sit there and you hope that they have food and clothing and water and all those things, and you just wait. That's not what happens in refugee camps. You know what happens in refugee camps? Life. Take a look at this picture. This is a picture. is in Jordan. And this is the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, which is filled with, at any given time, about 80,000 Syrians who, because of the unrest in their country, have gone into Jordan, and this is the place that they ended up. Some of them literally have fled with just the clothes on their back. Some have been able, able to bring belongings, but this is their, what they call home right now because they have nowhere else to go because literally that home that they lived in before has been destroyed. 
So now they find themselves in this camp. And it's crazy. They, there's literally been hundreds of thousands of people have gone through this camp over the last number of years. But in the middle of this camp, you know what's happening? Life. This belief that somehow I can make a life even in the middle of waiting for the next part of my life to begin. Show, show the next picture. I want to show you a woman. This lady's name is Um Marad. And she has done something pretty amazing in the middle of a refugee camp. You know what she's done? She opened a wedding dress shop. Just let that settle in for a moment. A refugee camp. She's opening a wedding dress shop. How do you think business is going for her in a refugee camp? You know, because people are always getting this great idea in the middle of refugee camps. We should get married. Life's really good right now. Life's stable. Let's get married. Listen to what she says. This is what's crazy. She says, life goes on even when you're a refugee. People marry. This shop has been in action for 13 months. I've prepared about 700 brides in that time. The best thing about having the business is that I interact with many people. It takes me away from all the misery that we have been living in. What is she doing? She's living in the middle of waiting. She actually has life. And I think when you think about that, sometimes you feel like you're living in the middle of a refugee camp. Because you're not where you want to be, but you're away from where you used to be, but you're somehow frustrated because God hasn't done what God's supposed to do yet, and so you just wait and wait and wait. And what God's saying is in the middle of the waiting, there's life that's supposed to happen in you. It may be the waiting for Jesus to return, which he's promised he will, but it may just be waiting for what you know that God's wanting to break through in your life. And so God's saying, listen, don't put your life on hold because you're waiting. Live your life in the middle of your waiting. That's what God desires for us. In fact, I'm going to ask the worship team if they would, they would come and join us. We're going to sing the last song together. But I, I want you to capture this song we've been singing over the last few weeks. But I love the, the, one of the lines that is, just speaks volumes about what we are experiencing, what God calls us to. It says, and while I'm waiting, I'm not waiting. Why? Because heaven lives in me. Simeon knew that. He knew God's spirit was at work in him. Even when he hadn't seen Jesus show up yet, he knew that God was present. I'm going to ask you if you would just close your eyes because I think there's some specific responses for people today that you are in situations where God is wanting to speak to you about the waiting in your life. So just with your eyes closed, I want you to think about this. And I know this is so, so true for so many of us. For some here today, you have struggled for years with a physical ailment. It may be a disease that you have. It may be an injury that you have incurred in your life. And so you have struggled physically for a long time and, and you have been waiting for God to work in your physical body. You've prayed to him. You've had people pray for you. You've had people lay hands on you. You've, you've done everything you can do to try to find an answer. You've done everything medically you can do to try to alleviate the pain or to find a way to cure the disease. And you still fight within your own body the desire to want to be healed, yet it still hasn't happened. And there's been those moments in the, you're waiting for this miraculous power of God to show up in your life. And there's been those moments, those low moments where one of two things, you've either questioned the reality of even living and you've thought, what would it be like to be out of pain? What would it be like to be free from this disease? And you've contemplated suicide. Or the other side of that is that you've 
become so frustrated with your physical challenges that you become bitter and angry towards God because you feel he's done nothing on your behalf. Now, I don't want to downplay or minimize the pain or suffering of anyone in this room, but I want you to hear this. Those who are struggling physically, hear me. God has not abandoned you in your suffering. God has not ignored your pain. He has not forgotten how to heal. But he is at work in the midst of your suffering. He is at work in the midst of your pain. I want you to hear something. In Hebrews 11, it tells us, it lists amazing people throughout the centuries who knew the promise that God had given that eventually there's going to be a redeemer, eventually there's going to be a Messiah that is going to save his people and the world from their sin and bring them back to God. But in Hebrews 11, there's this list of all these people who it says they died without seeing the fulfillment of that prophecy and that promise. But they remained faithful throughout their life. That means the fulfillment of the promise that they had known to be true in their life didn't come until after their life. They suffered. They were in pain. They struggled. But now the Bible actually says this is a, now they are part of a great cloud of witnesses that now looks down on humanity, looks down on us because now we're in the game. We're the ones that are in play right now. And as a sense of almost like, saying to us, you can do this. We did it. We believed. We were faithful. And in the end, ultimately, God was faithful to us. Listen to the voices of history from beyond the grave speaking to you and I that in the midst of your pain and your suffering, God has not left you, but he is with you. And if he will not or does not heal you in this life, he will transform you in the next one. And then there's others today. It's not a physical ailment that you've been dealing with. But you've been waiting for breakthrough in other areas of your life that you've been holding on for and you've been believing and trusting, but you're frustrated and you're becoming disillusioned because you feel like God is not breaking through. It may be that you've been contending for some kind of transition in your career and maybe you've been going to school and maybe you've been orchestrating your life to get to one end and you feel like it's not materializing and you feel like you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and you're praying and you feel like God's not answering. Remember, God is working on you as he prepares to work in you. And I felt this, especially for this service, not as much for service, but for this service. There are some here today, and you are longing for a spouse. In fact, you may be even dating somebody right now that could be that person. But you've been longing, in fact, your, your desire is so strong to be married that sometimes even in your life, you could say that it's caused you to not have the best judgment. And you know that God knows your heart and knows your desire, but somehow in the waiting for the person that will bring the fulfillment of what marriage should be, you have somehow shortchanged the process. You've gotten tired of waiting. And so you've taken matters in your own hands because you know that you want to be happy. And so in order for you to be happy, you stopped waiting for God and you start making decisions for yourself. And now maybe you found yourself in a relationship that was supposed to be the one and it's not. And so now you struggle. God says, if you will wait, 
God will be faithful because he's already at work in your life. So I don't know what your waiting is today, but I know that one thing's for sure. Simeon saw it at the end of his life. Some of us will see it in the next life, but also many of us will experience the fullness of the, in this life of God's full breakthrough. So today we learn how to wait. And so as we're going to sing this song in a moment, I'm going to ask you, by faith, with hope, that God is actually at work, that we believe that in the waiting, God is at work. So in the waiting, we choose to live our lives and follow him. So Jesus, would you give us patience? Would you give us courage? Would you give us strength? Would you give us the ability beyond our own human capacity to lean into you, to not lean back, but with expectancy to know that you're at work in our lives and you are going to do what you said you're going to do but Lord, you do it in your timing and you do it the way you want to do it. Let us learn to trust you in the waiting. But Lord, I pray today, as you did to Simeon, you led him into the temple. Your spirit was on him. That if your fulfillment isn't now, but it's later, that by your spirit you would speak to us today. We would hear and feel your presence. We would know your voice and know that you're reminding us, I am still with you to the very end. We thank you, Jesus, that you are present in our lives and you're